Hey, welcome to the Mind Your Health podcast. I'm so glad you can join us. I'm your host, Dr. Mina Merholm. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist and an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry in Columbia University. I'll be speaking with some of the leading experts in mental health around the world to learn how we can incorporate principles of lifestyle changes, our faith, as well as some of the leading innovations in mental health to learn how we can live happier and more fulfilled lives. And hopefully we'll have some fun along the way. I hope this inspires you and encourages you to mind your health. Today I'm joined by a particular expert that I've been really excited to speak with. It's a topic I think that we all want to hear about. I have with me uh, Tal Ben-Shahar, who is the Happiness Studies Academy co-founder. He has taught a course in Harvard on this course. He has taught a course in Columbia uh, on this subject matter and is really a subject I think that we all want to know about this idea of happiness. What does it mean? What does it look like? So thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Me too. So as uh, you, you might have heard this before from the classic band. Uh, so John Lennon once he, he spoke about when he was a kid, the, you know, there was an assignment, right? And the teacher asked him, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, happy. And they told him, you don't understand the assignment. He said, you don't understand life. And he, he dropped the mic. He <laughs> said, I'm, I'm John Lennon. No, don't tell me what to do. So can you just tell us a little bit about this idea of happiness and kind of what your work has been like studying? Yeah, you know, um, uh, let, let me start with, with another quote or a story. Uh, this is uh, by Marty Seligman, who's uh, from the University of Pennsylvania and considered by many to be the founder of the field of uh, positive psychology. So when he addresses parents, he often begins with the following question. He asks them, so uh, what would you like for your children? Mm. And they, they all answer basically what John Lennon said, you know, I want my child to be happy or I want my child to have good relationships or to be resilient, or healthy. And he makes a list of all the things that parents want for their children. And then, okay, we're moving over to list number two. Question mm. number two, he asked them, what do your children learn in school? Mm. And they say, well, you know, the, the three R's, you know, math, arithmetic, uh, writing, they, they learn geography, history, biology, and so on. There's almost no overlap between mm. the, two, uh, the two lists. And that's unfortunate. While of course it's important you know, to, to study the three R's, you know, to be well-versed in your history and, and geography, why are schools almost entirely neglecting mm. happiness, especially today when we have a science of happiness? And you know, th this is what I've been focusing on for the past you know, 30 plus years. And um, there are whole, you know, departments and, and schools now focusing on the very important question, which is how can you increase levels of well-being? It's critical. And that's why I feel like today our viewers are sort of uh, in luck. You missed out on this in school and you haven't been a part of where this, <laughs> you know, school is teaching you how to be happy. You get this kind of sneak preview here. So, you know, when you speak about the science of happiness, you know, for, for some folks, they figure, okay, I, I will just be happy if I have some more stuff. You know, mm. if I only got this other car then boom, I'll be happy. What does the science tell us about what actually makes us happy? So, you know, the first, the first thing that it tells us is that most of us, most of the time are wrong uh, <laughs> because we, we do believe, you know, I believe that for years that the path to happiness lies in, in achieving more, you know, conquering this mountain, getting into this school, getting this job, finding this partner, mm. and then we'll be happy. It turns out not to be the case. Yeah, it leads to a temporary high, a spike in our levels of well-being, but that's, that's ephemeral. It doesn't last. What leads to lasting happiness are things like uh, relationships and cultivating relationships. So, you know, it's, it's not finding the right person that's most important for happiness. It's cultivating that one chosen relationship. 
That's mm. most important for happiness. Or appreciating what we have. You know, if we can, uh, you know, as, as Oprah reminds us to do constantly, if we can appreciate what, what we have rather than take it for granted, then we'll be happier. If we can exercise regularly, eat healthfully on an ongoing basis, and again, or, or meditate regularly, not go to that 10-day retreat, which is great. But that's not the answer to the question of happiness. But rather, if we meditate for five, 10 minutes every day mm. for you know, months and, and years, that will increase levels of happiness. So it's doing specific things consistently that is the, the key to happiness, not that one-off achievement. I love that. I love that. There seem, it seems to be a strategic element to it and a consistent element to it, that if we were to build these habits, if you will, right, these like happiness habits, and incorporate them daily, then that really makes a big difference. And to your point here, yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, and and, and yeah, j- just to reiterate what you said, the key is habits. You know, mm. uh, John Dryden, a British poet who lived 400 years ago or so, uh, wrote that we first make our habits and then our habits make us. Oh, I love that. And the key is to create habits, to do things consistently so that they end up making us. And, and they literally make us, by the way, because mm. our, our neural pathways actually change. And we mm. become more grateful, more appreciative. We learn to interpret mm. reality in a specific way if we practice it consistently. We learn to be more present if we mm. practice it consistently and so on. Can you unpack that for me a little bit more? Because I, what some feedback I get from people is, I want to be more grateful or I want to do these mm. things consistently, but I'm, but I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm a pessimist. I just see the worst in things and it's, it's not my nature, right? I'm just not meant to have this kind of stuff. Yeah. How do you sort of walk someone through actually creating a habit or maybe first breaking down a negative one to create a positive habit? Yeah, so the first thing is really to recognize things for what they are. And there is a a grain of truth in a pessimist saying, well, I'm a pessimist because Mm -hmm. we are born with certain genetic predispositions. Genes, early experiences make a a big difference Mm -hmm. when it comes to our happiness and overall well-being. At the same time, there's also a lot of evidence showing that we can change. You know, I often mm. tell my students that I'm the right person to teach happiness. Why? Because I wasn't born with happy genes. Uh. You know, I, I was born with um, anxious genes mm-hmm. you know, from a very young age. And from all the stories that I heard from my you know, parents and grandparents, I inherited that. So um, I hear you. I'm there too. (laughs) So you know, and and again, you know, many of us are whether it's anxious genes or depressive genes or pessimism. The question is not, you know, how can I become a a Pollyanna? You know, how can I always look on the bright side and Mm. be calm? Mm. That's not the question. Consistently, the question is, how can I become less anxious? How can I become calmer? How Mm. can I work on these things and? Over time, make improvements, make headways. And that comes through consistency. You know what's interesting? There's great research by Carol Dweck from Stanford on um, the growth mindset. And what she shows is that even learning about neural pathways, even learning about the fact that our brain changes literally till the day we die, that in and of itself can make us more susceptible to change. So what I have Mm. to tell those pessimists or those anxious individuals or or depressed individuals, just take a look at your brain. Look Mm. at how it changes, how it can change, and I'll start doing the work. In other words, be open to change and then put in the effort. 
That's so powerful. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily know that part, that there's an actual neurobiology, neurochemical change that takes place. You know, that might be surprising to some viewers now that you just figure, oh, your brain is what it is, you grow, and then it's stuck forever. And I know this is something that has even been sort of emerging in the past decade or two. Like we've learned so much more exactly. about what this looks like. Can you tell us a bit more about that part, what we know in the past decade or so? Yes. So, you know, basically until 1998, not too long ago, the prevailing belief in the scientific community, I'm not even talking, you know, lay people, the scientific right. community was that our brain doesn't change. But basically mm -hmm. Freud was right, you know, right. until the age of three, all these physiological changes happen, you know, all these early experiences leave their imprint on us. But after the age of three, basically we have to make the, the best of our lot. It, mm -hmm. it won't change. 1998, a few breakthroughs in the area of neuroscience uh, showed us that actually the brain continuously changes. And then mm. the research, as, as you pointed out, over the past decade consistently shows that whether it's through meditation, whether it's through exercise, whether it's through repeating certain you know, mantras, words, by doing it repeatedly over and over again, the brain changes. In a very similar way, you know, we're, we're in the midst of the, the Olympics right now, and we see mm. the people who are performing at such high level, such remarkable mastery over mm. their, their bodies. How did they get there? They got there through consistent, persistent action. Right. I look at Djokovic or Serena Williams, you know, hitting that tennis ball. You know, they do it automatically because they have neural pathways that were actually created right. through practice. Now, take this exact same idea and apply to the realm of self-help, of mm. happiness, of personal improvement. The exact mm. same idea. You know, we can't hope to read a book on tennis and become great tennis player, players, or even better tennis players. I, I really tried. I did it. <laughs> it didn't work for you, yeah. It didn't work, I mean, no. Yeah. <laughs> and yet people think, okay, I'll just read this self-help book or I'll attend mm. this lecture by a very charismatic speaker and that will make all mm. the difference. It won't. Right. It may be a trigger. It may be a first step of a thousand mile journey, but that's mm. all it is. That's so profound. And I think there's an element, I guess, that is looking for that kind of uh, one trigger to be the lasting uh, difference because it is a commitment, right? Can you speak to that? Like the fact that it's to have this day in and day out commitment. So maybe you do, it's sort of, you know, how some folks uh, describe the experience of dieting, trying to lose weight, right? Like you'll do, you'll eat really well for a day or two or a week or mm. two, but then eventually there is this, fatigue to the commitment. How do you sort of guide folks who yeah. maybe get the trigger, get on the right foot and say, I'm going to do this. My alarm is set. I'm going to meditate early in the morning, but then fatigue sets in and life sets in and then they get derailed. You know, to my mind, that's the most important question we need to ask as psychologists or as change agents in general, because, you know, the ideas are out there. There's plenty of knowledge. You know, Aristotle mm. wrote about it. Lao Tzu wrote about it. The Buddha right. wrote about it or spoke about it. Right. But the question, the challenge is, how do you take these ideas and apply them, literally internalize mm. them? Mm. Because it's so often that we, we read a book or we attend a lecture and we experience that high and we think, oh, wow, this mm. is the first day of the rest of my life. Perfect. Now I'm going to make all, the, all this change. And it doesn't happen. In mm. more cases, it doesn't happen than, than it does. So how do we do that? Well, there, and there are a few things that we can do. First of all, think small changes. You know, mm. rather than thinking, okay, now I'm going to start meditating for three hours a day because that's what my <laughs> guru does. No, right. start with three minutes a day and right. build on it. And then, you know, may maybe eventually you'll get to 30. But mm. even if you stay at 10, good enough. 
or uh, ex okay now I've, I've watched the olympic you know i'm i'm going to you know swim like ledecky i'm going to just go and go and go no you know start with one one lap two laps and build on it the same with uh, with gratitude you know start with you know once a week with your family to express mm-hmm. gratitude around the table or one night before you go to bed see what works for you and then build on that so small changes initially lower the bar in other words mm-hmm. second mm-hmm. second it's much better to do it together you know there's some fascinating research mm-hmm. on change showing that people who attend a very impactful and powerful program specifically i'm thinking about research done on lifestyle eat better exercise more you know live more healthfully mm. and what they showed is that people who went through this program if you look at them 6 months later less than a quarter of them actually persisted even though wow. at the end of the program they were again ready to transform their lives <laughs> less than a quarter actually persisted which wow. by the way you know over 20% is quite a lot it's quite yeah. quite you know good batting average however if you had those same people just told to find an accountability buddy someone mm. who went through the program with you and and all you do is you know you on email just ask each other once a week mm. so how are you doing what have you been doing uh, in an empathic and accepting way mm. just that change took it from under 25% to over 75% compliance wow. now that's remarkable you know we're not remarkable. talking about you know having a full time coach remind you to okay did you right, did you right, exercise right. did you eat well just an accountability buddy and that can be you know your 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 partner your friend you know someone you met online it doesn't matter and you and and you help one another uh, but having that can make a, a big difference and and by the way once you introduce change it's much easier to persist why mm. because it becomes a habit we first make our habits and then our habits make us so the first month the first you know 3 months are hard but after that you know i don't need my mom to remind me how to brush my teeth in the morning right Right. You know, been there, done that. She did that many yeah. times, and now it's a habit. And in the same way, I don't need Oprah to remind me to do the gratitudes mm. every night before I go to bed or to exercise regularly. These are all habits that initially were difficult to implement, to inculcate. But once they're there, they're there. It's getting over that initial hump, and like you're saying, it sounds like yeah. you know when the bar is low, you do kind of build momentum when you feel like I, I can do something, and that allows you to kind of get encouraged and. The, there's a little bit of happiness and you can kind of keep that happiness going. I like the fact that you use the word momentum because it's exactly what it is. You know, if you think about one thing leading to another, hmm. uh, you know, one act leading to another and once you have that momentum, then your inertia carries. Right. And when you spoke about the power of accountability or just kind of the joint experience, for some people they find that in different kinds of communities, whether it's a friend community, social community, faith community, has there been a role at all for folks who find the faith community as part of you know their natural experience or something that's helpful for them does that tie in at all to kind of building on happiness for people yeah so first of all there's a lot of research on uh, the impact of communities and mm. the research works both ways by the way in mm. terms of helping being helpful or being detrimental so yeah. if you're around smokers you're much more likely to smoke if you're around mm. pessimists you're much more likely to be pessimistic true if you similarly if you're around people who live healthfully you're more likely to do so if you're around happy people it's contagious it turns mm. out there's some great work from Yale sociologist Christakis who talks about clusters and whether it's happiness clusters and clusters of people or mm. whether it's about health clusters or smoking clusters 
Why? Because we're, we're influenced by our environment. You know, we're by our very nature social animals. Mm. And the same applies to different kinds of communities. You know, for example, mm. if you think about, about religion, one of the reasons why religion contributes to happiness is because you're automatically, you know, by virtue of being a member of that religion, you're part of a community. You know, mm. whether, you know, you're, you know, you go on Friday, Saturday or Sunday, you go and you spend time with people. You don't just spend time with people. You're also talking mm. about virtues and values in most cases. Just that social support mm. in and of itself contributes to well-being. Oh, that's excellent to know that they, that sometimes can feel like an intuitive beginning for some folks, that they have this part that's already there in their life. But if we can kind of help uh, recognize and, and build on what's already there to be more uh, cognizant of it and know that this is something that you can be intentional about. I think that can go a long way. The other part I was curious about, I, I came across this book once uh, called The Happiness Advantage uh, that was talking about, right, I'm sure, you know, you know all these happiness books, <laughs> that was talking about kind of the productivity element of it as well, like not just for your individual life, but to how this can impact, let's say, if you're a company, why would you as a company want your employees to be happy? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. You know, I, I do a lot of work with organizations. Now, if I went to the, uh, you know, to the C-suite and said to them, look, bring me in because I can help your employees become happier. In <laughs> most cases, what they would say is, you know, that, you know that's wonderful. Why don't you come in and speak at our Christmas party? <laughs> you know, entertainment. It's nice. Right. It's cool. Yeah. But if I say to them, look, I can increase levels of well-being. And as a result of that, your employees will become more innovative, more creative. Mm. They'll become more productive, more engaged. Retention rates will go up. Fewer, mm. fewer employees will, live, will leave you. And you know what? Revenues will increase. They'll suddenly say, oh, wow, so happiness pays. Happiness uh-huh. is a good investment. There is ROI on that. Right. And that changes the equation. There is so much research today showing that happiness does just that. You increase mm. levels of well-being even by a little bit. I'm not talking about radical transformation here. You increase mm. levels of well-being by 3 4%, which very doable. And creativity, innovation, productivity, engagement, retention, revenues all go up significantly. That is, I mean, that's remarkable. Have you felt like when you presented this to, to people, was that surprising in the corporate world and in the C-suite environment? Yeah, it's, it, it is surprising, though, once you think about it beyond, you know, the, the uh, superficial level, mm. it actually makes sense. Because, you right. know, you, you think about when, you know, when you feel a little bit happier, better off, you have more energy. Right. You know, when, when you're down, generally what we want to do is, you know, close ourselves up, you know, vegetate mm. in front of the TV. It's when we're in a good mood. That's when we're energetic. That's when we're mm. committed. That's when we're engaged. Uh, so, so, so it doesn't make intuitive sense. And then beyond intuition, I, I provide the tuition. That is what research is all for. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's to show that, that these things um, actually work. Now, intuitive at some level, but where tuition research does help, is to understand the relationship between success and happiness. Mm. Success doesn't lead to happiness. You know, we spoke about it earlier, you know, reaching that, mm. conquering that mountain is not what will lead to lasting happiness. And, you know, those mm. people in the C-suite, they know that. They know that right. when they first became managers or first got that raise and started to make more money, they were very happy. But very quickly, mm. that initial happiness, you know, dissipates. Right. However, they also know that while success doesn't lead to happiness, if they increase levels of well-being, they will be more successful. 
for all mm. the reasons I, I discussed. So the relation between success and happiness is an important one to point to. And by the way, it's important not just to point to those managers. It's important to point that out to students in school. Right. You know, I thought, I really did believe that, and, and, and I'm not alone here, that once I get into my top choice school or one of my top choices, you know, I'll live the happily ever after. Right. Or once I get my dream job or find my, you know, my, my dream partner, then I'll be set. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not the case. You're, you're certainly not alone on that. And I think one of the, the very difficult things is that the bar keeps moving throughout your whole life, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's, you know, and especially if you're in a competitive area of training, some folks listen to this are in the medical field. If only I get into this medical school, if only this residency, if only this, and, and the if onlys really just don't end ever. So this, this time where you're waiting to get happy or to become happy, it just seems like when you retire, maybe, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, uh, that's a big maybe because it also doesn't happen happen then <laughs> unless you understand that the formula is a different one. Mm. You know, I, I, talk, I talk about the arrival fallacy. Uh. Uh, and that is the illusion that once we arrive, once we get to, to a place, then we'll be happy. And again, it's, it's, mm. it's a fallacy. It's, it's an illusion. And the thing is, you know, the metaphor, you, you use the metaphor of, you know, the bar always, always moves. A similar metaphor and one which personally I can connect to as well is uh, Sisyphus. Sisyphus did, he pushed the rock up the mountain, right, right. got to the top of the mountain and the rock mm. was rolled back and then, you know, he had mm. to push it up again. But the metaphor that applies to the situation of the arrival fallacy is what I've come to call Sisyphus 2.0. <laughs> Why? Because, okay, so Sisyphus pushes the, the, the rock up the mountain and then the rock drops down. But the, the reason why it's 2.0 is because the, the mountain becomes steeper mm. every time. So yeah, so initially it was to get into a good college or to give it a numerical example, to make you know $3,000 a month and then I'll be yeah. so happy. And you make <laughs> it and you're very happy. But then it becomes 5,000, you know, and it becomes more difficult. Mm. And then it becomes 50,000 and, you know, mm -hmm. it never ends. Mm -hmm. You know, and the example for that is, you know, all the very, very wealthy people around the world, all the very, very successful, again, the, the you right. know, gold medalists, that doesn't guarantee happiness because that mountain keeps on changing. You know, the incline keeps on increasing mm. and it's never enough. It can never be enough if that is our model of happiness. That is so powerful. One of the, the lines that come to my mind is um, Bono, uh, the lead singer of a band, U2. There, there was a line where he once said, you can never have enough of what you don't really need. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's just never enough of it. And I think what you're saying is actually so liberating to so many people. When you, when you can kind of take yourself out of this mountainous climb and say, hey, there's another path that it's not, you know, all green pastures always and you're just skipping all the time, but at least, you know, it, it's more in your control as opposed to waiting for something to happen to you or to have some kind of measure of achievement, which is, I think, empowering and liberating. Like, that's the vibe that I'm getting right now. Yeah, so, and, and here is the thing, you know, I'm, I'm not against ambition. I'm not against hard work. Yeah. I think these things are, are wonderful. The thing that we need to understand is that our happiness is not contingent on achieving those things mm. necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's about pursuing. So pursue something that is meaningful to you, whether it's medicine, whether it's teaching, whether it's banking, it doesn't matter. Find something mm -hmm. that is meaningful to you and then pursue it and understand that what mm -hmm. your happiness is contingent on is the pursuit of something meaningful. It's mm -hmm. the appreciation of those things that you have. It's spending quality time with those people you care about. And so on. And these things, as you point out, are by and large, certainly in, you know, in free countries where basic needs are met, 
Right. And that's important. We're basically direct, they're accessible to all of us. That's uh, that accessibility, I think, is maybe the hope that a viewer can walk away with today. I think there's, I mean, I would love to talk to you all day, honestly, because I feel like there's so much for me to learn and so much for folks to learn that this is something that's accessible at your fingertips and that you can do very practical, very small steps. So I would want people to learn more from you. How can people connect to you? How can they learn from kind of this wealth of the pursuit of happiness here? Thank you for asking. So my website is at talbenshahar.com. That's, that's one word. And there are links there to online courses that, that we offer uh, to books and to a, a whole of information within this, this wonderful and growing field of uh, happiness studies. It's a happy field. It's a, it's a nice thing to be able to even talk about. Huh? <laughs> it's a happy field and it's a field that provides space for, you know, pain mm. and suffering and difficulties mm. and hardship. You know, that's part of the package. It's part of right. every life. You know, and I just want to flag that for a second, Tal, but, you know, as we're coming to a close, because one of the fallacies I feel like that people have about this subject is that the expectation is you'll just be, you know, you'll have this euphoria all the time that everything is amazing. And, and from everything I'm hearing from you is there is this understanding that there is a space for pain, suffering, reality of life. And the, but we're really pursuing something that's going to help you actually deal with those things, that it's not some superficial feeling that we're trying to have people have. It's, it's a reality that you can sort of internalize. Yeah, just a couple of things on that. First, you know, the first step to happiness is allowing in unhappiness. Mm. Because if we reject unhappiness, if we reject sadness or anxiety or fear or envy or, or frustration, if we reject these emotions, they only intensify, they grow stronger. So the first step, mm. accepting it as you know, part and parcel of every life. And second, mm. to, to your point, and this is a medical analogy, you know, what the science of happiness is about is strengthening our psychological immune system. Mm. Now, it's a strong immune system doesn't mean we don't get sick. It simply right. means we get sick less often. And when we do, we recover more promptly. Mm. And that is the you know, goal, the realistic goal of the science of well-being. That's beautiful. I mean, that really resonates with me. It's realistic, it's tangible, and it's something that we sort of strive for. Tal, I just want to thank you so, so much for taking the time to, to speak with me today. And our, our, I'm sure our viewers are going to be very grateful for this as well. And I encourage everyone to connect on your website, talbenshahar.com. Uh, check out the books, the courses. I know I'm signing up. I'm going to get a couple of copies because I, you know, I, I want to st strengthen my psychological immune system. It's, it's flimsy. <laughs> so thank you again so, so much. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. Please take a second to rate and review as this helps us reach more people. And until then, please don't forget to mind your health. See you soon.